0: It's August 1996, Boston. The Seaport World Trade Center right along Boston Harbor. Inside this building is a trade show devoted to Apple, the famous but faltering computer maker. Outside the building, attached to a pier, is an enormous crane plastered with the logo of Power Computing, the foremost maker of Mac clones, along with the name of its latest model, the Power Tower Pro. Attached to the crane is a bungee jumping platform. And so, as taxis whisk in and out of the convention center, anyone entering or leaving Macworld Expo Boston is serenaded by the sound of blood curdling screams. Just another day in the life of mid 90s Apple. It's 20 Max for 2020. I'm Jason Snell. This is number 10 power computing. The computer industry in the mid-90s was dominated by Wintel, the alliance of Microsoft Windows and Intel-based PCs. The Mac was a niche product, largely for a base of hardcore fans and some specific industries such as publishing that had standardized on it. Microsoft, Intel, and the PC makers were riding high, and after the release of Windows 95, Apple was barely hanging on. During this period, everyone from journalists to investors would look at Apple and wonder, why doesn't it get with the program? Microsoft is making money hand over fist by licensing Windows to PC makers, who themselves are making money hand over fist by selling those computers to an enormous market. Why can't Apple just be more like Microsoft? Or Dell? Pick! This was a fundamental misunderstanding of what Apple actually was, even in its beleaguered mid-90s state. Apple's entire business was about building hardware and software together. In the mid-90s, Apple's hardware was not particularly notable. It would probably have crashed and burned if it had been just another PC maker. It was macOS that made Apple's hardware special. But at some point in the mid-90s, some powerful people inside Apple came to believe this misreading of Apple was true, at least a little bit. And since Apple wasn't going to make it as a competitor to Dell, it decided to try to be more like Microsoft and sell licenses to Mac OS. With that, the era of Mac clones was born. Here's John Gruber.
1: I've always thought that it was a decision driven more by Wall Street. I think fundamentally at the time, Microsoft and Intel were doing so phenomenally well. And Microsoft dominated the industry. They dominated profits. They were dominating culture. Bill Gates was enormously famous. And the basic idea was, well, if Microsoft can make all this money just licensing their OS and letting other companies make the computers, Apple could do the same thing. Apple should do the same thing. And it was hammered for years and years. And the argument that Apple should license macOS to clone makers went from, this is the stupidest idea I've ever heard, that everybody agreed to, well, maybe, I don't know. (laughs) They got worn down, and they had no other answers, and they're like, okay, we'll try it. Stephen Kong was a computer
0: engineer who had made millions in the PC clone business, and he saw an opportunity to apply the lessons he learned as a ruthless PC clone maker to a soft market entirely unaccustomed to real competition. So he founded Power Computing, which got the first Mac clone license. He set up a factory in Austin, Texas, that would use some of the same innovative build-to-order techniques that had been pioneered by Dell, one of Power Computing's neighbors. Here's the next thing he did.
2: Steve Kong and I and a number of others, we went and hired the Power Mac development team.
0: This is Mike Rosenfeld, who was Power Computing's director of marketing. And yes, Power did hire Apple's Power Mac team to build Mac clones.
2: From the hardware side, people like John Fitch, the original chief hardware architect of Lisa. And then he was the chief architect of the the Power Mac. To the software side, people like Carl Hewitt. I mean, down to the ROM guys. The guys who built the Power Macs came in mass. They were frustrated with Apple. Not in a bad way. I mean, they, they were passionate and loved Apple, which is why they didn't leave the ship, if you will. In fact, I think in some respects, we probably saved them from leaving the, the Apple, if you will, macro arena. And then when Apple opens up the reference architecture, again, these guys built it. The ability to yield the latest processors, to the latest technologies, we had some advantages to do that. And a lot of it came because so many people came from Apple. And, and I think it's because, and I remember having these conversations, they were passionate about Apple. I mean, they were passionate about the OS, passionate about trying to make the ecosystem survive and thrive, and didn't want to leave, but felt stymied and felt like, hey, We're not shipping stuff.
0: Here's Shelley Brisbane, who worked at MacUser during the clone era.
3: I'm somebody who, if you know me, you've heard me make connections to... Austin, Texas in many contexts, but I really do feel like where the clones are concerned, both with Motorola, with the fact that there was PowerPC development going on at Motorola and IBM, which were both in Austin, and there were other clone makers who were making little stabs, nothing like what Power Computing was doing because they were clearly the lead uh, clone maker, but there was all this PowerPC development and just conversation going on down here, and this is long before Apple ever decided this is a place that they wanted to be. And it was funny because I was living in California by then, and I would go to Macworld Expo, and I would see, you know, 10 people I knew from Austin in booths.
0: So set up in Austin, armed with a Mac OS license, a bunch of ex-Apple engineers, and modern manufacturing techniques pioneered by its neighbor Dell, Power Computing set out to change the face of the Mac world. And it did, for a couple of years, along with a bunch of other Mac OS licensees. Now, the original idea was not that the clone makers were going to compete with Apple— The idea was that they'd expand the Mac market, bringing in new buyers who, for some reason, wouldn't buy a Mac from Apple, but might buy a macOS computer from another company.
2: Apple deserves credit because I don't think they viewed it necessarily as competitive as it may look externally, right? In other words, it was like, hey at least within the licensing teams, but even with the engineering teams, like, hey, this is cool. I mean, I can't tell you how many times we got requests from Apple engineers for t-shirts or, or passes to power computing parties. In some respects, they were happy that the ecosystem was evolving and being pushed. It never felt hyper-competitive. Even at the very end, in other words, us versus Apple, it's like, yeah, we're picking up the, the banner and waving the flag and fighting back for Mac. It wasn't fighting Apple. It was fighting for the ecosystem to survive.
0: Now, if you lived through the Mac clone era, that phrase Mike Rosenfeld just used, fighting back for the Mac, might sound familiar. It was Power Computing's marketing slogan and call to arms. In the mid-90s, Apple's marketing was spectacularly boring. One of my jobs at Mac User Magazine during this period was to compile the monthly reader mail column. And a constant theme was enthusiastic Mac users who were aghast at Apple's inability to market the virtues of the Mac to the wider world. Power Computing's marketing was the opposite of boring. It spoke to loyal Mac users in their own language, a scream of defiant pride. Let's kick Intel's ass, read one particularly memorable poster featuring the cartoon character Sluggo.
4: I still have my Sluggo t-shirt that uh, got Sluggo in front of Nancy going, let's kick Intel's ass. They were handing those out at Macworld Expo.
0: This is my old boss, Rick LePage, who was an editor at MacWeek at the time.
4: Their marketing was top-notch. I mean, that 225-foot bungee jump, when you were walking up the piers there in Boston, that was all you saw was the Power Computing logo, you know, hanging off that crane. They were smart. They used everything they possibly could. Stephen Kong, the CEO, was a pretty smart dude. He was kind of quiet. He let Mike and the team really go to town on the marketing, but he was a really smart dude.
0: Here's John Syracuse. But that T-shirt said multiple things at once. One is like, we're better than Intel PCs. We are the best of the best. But two is, we're fighting back for Mac because Apple won't. (laughs) Like Essentially, we're willing to get in there with our fists swinging and tell you Macs are the best. And you know why they're the best? Because we made them the best. And Apple's not going to get into this fight. And Apple's not going to get into this ticky-tack megahertz war with Intel. But we are, because that's who power computing is. They would uh, make fun of Microsoft. They would do all the sort of impolitic things that Apple would try not to
2: do. And
0: that got people excited.
2: To this day, I get people who ask me if I have any old posters of the let's kick Intel's ass Lugo poster. And I can't tell you how many of those people were actual Apple employees. Some of them would never buy a power computing system, but they appreciate the fact that, hey, someone was trying to you know, fight the good fight. I think the first and most important thing was it was authentic, right? I mean, we literally believed that i mean we were all passionate apple users i mean we eat sleep and drink that kool-aid and still do i was honest i mean that's how we felt we were like it, i don't want to use a pc windows 95 sucks so it was honest and it wasn't just me it was everybody and that's how we recruit employees that's how we recruited engineers and and sell people on the phones and people in the factory to build this stuff it was a mission not just a a marketing campaign, and the mission was to save the Mac and to fight back. And once you have a mission, you have an enemy, and the enemy, again, wasn't Apple. The enemy was Wintel. Everything becomes easy, right? You fall in line, and that's what you saw.
3: What's interesting about it is that the people who created power computing came out of Dell. So that sort of commodity-oriented approach to creating computers was straight from Dell, had no connection to Apple or Apple's sort of premium design-driven methods, but then they were completely aware of the community they were coming into and their marketing and their ads and the way they presented themselves at Macworld Expo and the people that they sent were very oriented toward the Mac community and more so the community even than the sort of professional.
0: So we're all fighting the good fight. Power Computing's marketing spoke to a lot of us Mac users, but that was really the problem with this whole idea of Mac clones. They spoke in large part, to the existing base of Mac users, not just enthusiasts, but the professional customers that provided Apple some of its biggest profit margins.
1: Part of where Apple really got into trouble, where the clone situation made their finances worse, is that they didn't just sell higher-end computers for more money. They also charged significantly higher margins for them. Within the niche that the Mac was, the niche within the niche of the high end professional user, they're the ones who were most likely to go to the clones. And I think Apple, maybe if there was a strategy in place, sort of thought the opposite was going to happen where they thought we're Apple and we've got the brand, so we'll keep all the high end. And we'll let these clone makers take over the low end of the market, whereas eh, this isn't that great anyway. We're not even making money on it. And the opposite happened. They lost all of their most profitable customers who had the money and knew what they were doing and actually had the professional need to buy the highest end machines. They knew exactly what they were doing. Well, this is a 68040 running at whatever megahertz. I get a faster t- computer for $2,000 less from this other company. And, you know, it was a bad decision, but it, was in some ways an honest decision where the the part that was left that was really worth saving was the software platform. And the hardware side wasn't. It, they they really had lost their way more. You know, price per, per, per performance, that industrial design, there was nothing, no part of the hardware side that was really like, well, this is still great.
0: And the truth is, clone makers like Power Computing could run circles around Apple. All of Apple's sales came through a very large, slow-moving sales channel, Power Computing built each computer to order to a customer's specifications, meaning it had essentially no inventory, a remarkable level of customizability, and access to the latest chips that weren't ready to ship in the volumes that Apple required. They were always bragging about whatever their fastest computer was. If they were three megahertz higher in top-end clock speed than Apple, they would put it on a t-shirt. They were more nimble than Apple. They could do things more quickly than Apple.
2: We had some unfair competitive advantages, right? The model was one. In some respects, it was... Apple was held at the time captive to the business model. Remember, it was channel only, which meant an inability to release and push to market timely the latest yield from the IBM and Motorola processors. So in other words, it allowed a direct-to-consumer build-to-order manufacturer model like power computing to literally if IBM and the folks in New York could yield a thousand two hundred twenty-five megahertz 604s, we would take them, right? And we would build 1,000... 604 based risk systems whereas apple couldn't do that because they didn't have enough to, to put in a channel and it would actually kill the inventory that was there so there were customers who needed you know whether it be publishing digital automation digital video digital audio the scientific market i remember you know big customers like Lockheed and genentech buying our stuff is because they needed and were absolutely willing to pay for the performance that it just wasn't available elsewhere
4: they went and said, so what's the fastest chip you got coming? You get 225, 604, great, we'll take it. You had a bunch of ex-Apple engineers at Power who went and did some really cool stuff with it to boost performance, which was what a lot of people wanted out of their Macs. That was the fastest Mac you could buy. And Apple did not like that.
0: Since this is theoretically a series about the most notable Macs of all time, I guess I need to talk about Power Computing's computers themselves. (sighs) They were beige PCs, indistinguishable from any PC clone from the mid-90s. But you could configure them from a menu of tech options, and Power would just make it for you and ship it to your door. And that's why I bought one. I bought a PowerWave 604, which also had an innovative bit of technology that Power invented called Stargate that let you put expansion cards from the older Nubus standard and the newer PCI standard in the same computer, Uh, something that no Apple Mac ever offered. Which brings us to an interesting power computing footnote. It's combination of dell style built build-to-order systems with an embrace of the web.
2: It's funny, of all the memories I have was the day Carly Hewitt and a bunch of the software engineers for the product, not web guys, sat me down in Cupertino and said, hey, check this out. What do you think? you think this is cool? And they built an online configurator to say, okay, I want 16 meg of RAM. I want this much VRAM. I want this size hard drive. And we pushed it. I saw it, and I'm like, guys, we need to push this out now. And we put it up on the website. And to my knowledge, that was the first ever build-to-order configurable PC system on the market. And to me, that was probably one of the most important things we did because we were in Austin right across the street from Dell. Dell at that point had been doing it for a long time telephonically, right? Full huge page, multi-page ads in Computer Shopper Magazine. So the telephone piece was built into Dell, but at that point, no one had actually gone online and allowed you to play and, and, and different configurations. up. And to me, that was an epiphany moment. I, I remember physically sitting in the cube, um, and these, they were coming, talking to me about product management decisions. They were like, "Oh, we just built this this online configurator to build your own Mac." And I was like, "Oh my gosh, that, that that's profound." And again, it's it's obvious then; it was obvious now. But the fact that we were able to do that, I remember my friends at Dell saying, "Hey, that's really really cool." And obviously, Dell then took that mantle and drove it to historic proportions.
0: We had a couple of years of fun marketing and innovation and deals on beige systems that ran Mac OS. It was a great time especially for us in the media. Not only were our pages filled with competing clone advertisements, but every month there was something new and exciting for us to write about. Then Steve Jobs came back, and the party was over.
3: No more clones for you. Oh, dad's home. When Jobs said there will be no more clones, I think a lot of people on the user end, especially because they had grown so happy at the choices that they had, and the fact that the clone companies were sort of leaning into the Apple ethos it seemed like Steve was being the big bad and coming back in and doing a bad thing.
2: It was just surreal when Steve came back. I remember the phone call when, when Steve called. and I remember the meetings at Apple when he tried to recruit the, the Power Mac development team and that power community hired a way back.
3: And remember, Apple was in a terrible state at that time. So his bet that Apple was going to take over its own destiny and be successful was not necessarily... A confirmed one. It wasn't something you were sure was going to win. He was either going to fail spectacularly or he was going to be right. But I think in retrospect, there was no way they could have continued the clone business where they were at because Steve... Decided, and he was right, that you needed a real design driven approach to taking back and getting more market than they had before. And they they wouldn't have survived if they had let the clones live on a couple of years, and neither would Power Computing or any of the other clone makers.
4: When you look at the moribund Apple before Power PC and before the clones and where they were at sort of at the end, I mean, they were making money, but they were not making a lot of money. They were not doing anything exciting. And when the rumblings that they were going to lock down the licensing, it became a fight. I've been working and publishing most of my life. And the one time that I regret is that I allowed Mac Week to be part of the story. I mean, it was a big fight for probably three months And we were doing editorials, and I think some of our stories were slanted. We all got invested in Save the Clones.
0: Steve Jobs was not going to be stopped, and the lever he used to kill the clone market turned out to be a pretty simple one, as recounted here by James Thompson. So
4: I remember working at Apple and seeing what had been called System 7.7 all the way during development, mysteriously become a Mac OS 8 when it was finally released because the clone makers had a license that specifically stated system seven and it always struck me as a very Steve jobs move and a reminder that Apple has always played
2: hardball. We have filed our S one to go public. And what happened was when Steve came back, the fact that he could use fear, uncertainty and doubt to cast a pall over the license to make Steve Kong and the board of Power Computing, the venture capital firms, the, the corporate investors, say, hey, listen, we have no choice. If Steve wants to put an end to this, he's going to. The best strategy at this point is to optimize the return on the investment.
4: Power computing was big enough that they were causing a scene. Mike Rosenfeld was a great marketer, right? And finally, Apple's response to that was like, you know, we'll just buy you for $100 million in stock. How about that? <laughs> And that literally took the wind out of the sails
2: completely. Steve recognized that, hey, there were assets that were valuable, including the people. I remember the first meeting that he called, he called the whole engineering team and a couple of other people back into Cupertino. And I remember going in and, you know, he, him showing up at the meeting saying, hey, I'm here because we want you guys to come back and you think we're, I'm an asshole. And, and so, again, I think he recognized that in the case of power computing, the, the, the company had too much traction and actually had value or at least parts of it had value to him going forward. You know, in the big scheme of things, $100 million in Apple stock at the time, relatively cheap uh, currency.
4: In the end, it, it was the right decision. The Mac was not going to become Windows in 1998. It was not. We still had a long way to go before anything happened. Mac OS back then, it was going to end soon. Apple really didn't have a path forward. And that was why they bought Next.
0: And yet, maybe the clone era wasn't just the latest in a series of colossal mid-90s Apple mistakes. Another way to view it is as a lifeline. That the energy and enthusiasm that power computing injected into the Mac market might not have been sustainable in the long term, but kept things going right at the moment when Apple needed the help the most.
2: There is a collective amnesia, if you will, about life before Steve. And those three to five years that that preceded his return, where there was definitely floundering and there were some things that were brilliant and some things that were wacky. And it was a time where Apple lost its mojo. And for many, it was a fait accompli that the the war was over. And in that window, power computing was one of a couple of voices that today, let's keep fighting, let's keep pushing. It was a kind of strange, positive oasis and some energy at a time when Apple was on life support. And in some respects, it was kind of the booster, if you will. And then when Steve Jobs came back, he obviously was the genius and, and, and the afterburner.
0: When you look back at what Apple accomplished after Steve Jobs' return, it's hard to argue that it was a mistake to kill the clones. Now, in other circumstances, maybe Mac OS could have become a success as a licensed operating system. But 1996 was not the moment. Apple returned to its roots as a company that made the whole package, hardware and software working together, and the rest is history, which doesn't stop people who were touched by the Mac clone era, people like Mike Rosenfeld, from wondering.
2: You know, it's, it's funny. So when we came down for four months to Central America, the first thing I had to do, knowing they were going to be here for a while, was when I went shopping for some burner phones. And as you can imagine, in Central America, Apple product is very, very expensive. So instead, I ended up buying a Google Android phone. And it's just funny, which is I actually had that moment, which is, gee, in, in, in the perfect world... I would have a hardware agnostic decision to make, right? Which is, I don't want to run Android. I want to run iOS. It would be great if I could buy it on this, and run on this, this $35 Android reference platform hardware. So it's just interesting that I, I, I have those pangs too. On the other hand, I think history has shown that it's very, very hard to be a software-centric company or an OS-centric company and be successful in the hardware space. So I think Apple ultimately made the right decision and the proof is in the pudding. But I think we all have pangs of what could have been.
0: 20 Max for 2020 was written by me, Jason Snell. Special thanks to Mike Rosenfeld. Thanks also to Rick LePage, Shelley Brisbane, John Gruber, John Syracusa, and James Thompson. Brian Hamilton helped with post-production. I'll see you next week with number nine.